If you can keep your Bibles open to Mark 8. Continue our study of the book of Mark. Mark has been showing us that Jesus is the king who has come to reestablish God's rule over a broken world. And last week we saw that the, the external religious rites, external religious observances or practices do not have the power in and of themselves to change us from the inside out. Only Jesus can do that. Today, when we look at Mark 8, we're going to see that in order for us to be realigned under God's rule and authority, in order for us to be supernaturally changed from the inside out, we need to see four spiritual realities. And when we see these four spiritual realities, we then can begin to see that supernatural power of the gospel of the kingdom begin to work in our lives. So let's look at the first spiritual reality we need to see, and that is this. Number one, all of us in this room, whether you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior or whether you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, all of us have a propensity for spiritual blindness. All of us are prone to not get it spiritually. And that's true for everyone in this room. And for me, for you. Let's take a look at this. In Romans 8, 1 through 9, Romans 8, I've been doing this all day, Romans 8, 1 through 9. I'm actually preaching from the book of Mark. I did not study Romans 8, I studied Mark 8. You may send an email and say, I'm not so sure about that after the service. That's okay. Mark 8. In Mark 8, 1 through 9, Jesus heals 4,000 people with just seven loaves and a few fish. This is the second feeding of thousands of people that Jesus has been involved in. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Now he feeds another 4,000, and there's good reasons to believe that this isn't just a repetition uh, or a second reading of the same miracle. That this, is this is actually two separate feedings. Now, after the feeding of the 4,000, there are uh, baskets left over, seven baskets full. There were 12 baskets full of after he fed the 5,000. And the disciples get into the boat with Jesus, and they go across the lake. And they meet the Pharisees. We pick the story up in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and they went to the other side. So the Pharisees come. The Pharisees are surely aware of all of the miracles that Jesus has done. But they, in their unbelief, they want another sign. But they really don't want a sign. They just don't believe. They don't have faith in Jesus. They don't acknowledge who he is. This is not a desire for a sign. This is a statement of their unbelief. Now they're back in the boat, Jesus and the disciples. Verse 14, we pick up the story. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, the disciples. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. 
And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. When Jesus warns his disciples, he says, Listen, Herod and the Pharisees have a heart of unbelief. They have a hardened heart. And the leaven, just like yeast and bread, which will impact it so it, so it, it will grow, it will, it will become larger. <laughs> Beware of the leaven of their unbelief. Don't let it affect you. And now you see the disciples' proneness and our proneness to spiritual blindness. Verse 16. And they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now think about this. These disciples, all 12 of them, saw Jesus feed 9,000 people with 12 loaves of bread and a few fish. Now they only have one loaf for, for 12 of them, or 13 of them, counting Jesus, and now they're worried that they haven't brought bread, but the guy who fed 9,000 people is in the boat with them. Duh. Notice what Jesus, his response, verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? All of us have a propensity for spiritual blindness. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate. This is what Mark is trying to communicate. The disciples don't get it. They've got the one person in the world that, they, that certainly if Jesus can feed 9,000 people with 12 loaves of bread and a few fish, he can feed 13 people with one loaf. They don't get it. They don't understand. They don't connect the dots. Now, what's interesting what Mark does here, and he does this, I'm sure, on purpose, is in the middle of this spiritual blindness, and there'll be more spiritual blindness we'll get to in a minute, from the disciples, he puts the story of a healing of a blind man in the middle of the narrative to show that, that we are all prone to spiritual blindness. Let's continue the story in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you not see anything? I mean, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, there's a very interesting way for Jesus to do this miracle because the initial part of the miracle doesn't seem to work too well. Clearly, this was a person who had seen things before. He had probably lost his vision at some time, maybe in an early age. And so when Jesus says, do you see anything? Well, he says, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. 
Then Jesus has to complete the miracle. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Mark puts this story of the healing of the blind man in the middle of the narrative that shows the blindness of the disciples to kind of indicate to them and to us now as we read this that every single person on this planet struggles with spiritual blindness, even the followers of Jesus, even those of you who can sing. You know, I, you know, I, I once was blind, but now I see. But the reality is you still struggle to see just like the disciples did. And there's this two-stage miracle to show that Jesus constantly has to reopen our eyes so we see clearly, and then we stop seeing clearly again. We go back into our spiritual blindness. Jesus is constantly having to help us see what we need to see, to see the spiritual realities. And the first reality is this, we are all prone to spiritual blindness. This is actually sort of the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of Jesus. I know I'm going to date myself here, but some of you should go back and look at the archives. This isn't as old as Beethoven, but it is Michael Card. One of my favorite songs, God's Own Fool. He says, we in our, the song, part of the, the, the chorus goes, we in our foolishness thought we were wise. He played the fool and opened our eyes. The power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. One of the fascinating parts about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom is it's sort of the foundational reality that you need to get your hand, uh, head around and your heart around is that you don't see spiritually very well. And if you don't admit to that, if you don't see that, so to speak, You'll never really see what Jesus did for you. And actually, the people who think they see spiritually very well are the very people who don't see at all. The first spiritual reality we need to see here is we all have a propensity for spiritual blindness. Now, my, my assumption is that you are as dysfunctional as me. I think I'm right about that. I've been a believer for over 50 years. That seems crazy. Over 50 years, I've known Jesus Christ. God brought me to himself at a young age. And my experience is that I'm kind of moving along in my walk with Jesus, and God opens my eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I see a part of my life that's not conformed to Jesus to his word or to his kingdom. He opens my eyes, I see it, and I, he, God begins to change me by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I, for about a week or two, I feel like I'm really getting it. Only to have the Lord reveal to me again another layer of the onion of my life. And I go, ugh. I thought I had it. I don't. I often say this, and this is not a clever way for me to call you all the congregation idiots, okay? I'm not doing that. I, I could be tempted to do that, but not today. I often look at myself as God begins to move, and I begin to see another area of my life that's not conformed to, the, to Jesus Christ, and he begins to change me, and I'm thinking I'm getting it, and then all of a sudden he shows me another area, another layer of the onion. I often say to myself, Troxel, 
you are a recovering idiot. You get something. God begins to grow you. And then guess what? There's a whole other area of your life that needs help. I'm a recovering idiot. And if you know Christ, so are you. And what we have to see, if we're going to make any progress in this paradoxical, upside-down kingdom, we have to be in a place where we acknowledge that we are all prone to spiritual blindness. And if you think you can see, if you, if you think you've arrived in the Christian life, let me assure you, you're blind as a bat. You really are. And of course, this is really crucial that we have this attitude because if you think you've got it all together, you're not going to do very well with the rest of us who go in and out of spiritual you know, blindness. You're going to look at us and go, well, why can't they get it? I've got it together. Why can't they see? But the reality, the minute you say that, you are blind. We are all prone to spiritual blindness. That's the first reality we need to see. But there's a second reality. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But if you go back up to verse 22, you'll see it. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. In other words, it's true that every single one of us struggles with spiritual blindness. In our blindness, guess what? The second spirituality we need to see, we need people in our life who will draw us back to Jesus when we, when we stop seeing and looking at him. I mean, this blind man could not find Jesus on his own. He was blind. He had to have a group of friends that were willing to bring him to Jesus. And it's the same thing with us today. If you are prone to spiritual blindness, if you don't have people in your life that can speak to you, that can confront you, that, that can talk to you, that can bring you back to Jesus, you're in a world of hurt. If you try to live the Christian life by yourself, you will stumble around in your own blindness. We all need people in our life that are willing to speak to us and talk to us and guide us and help us because we all are prone to spiritual blindness. Therefore, we need people in our life that will rescue us from our blindness. A physical illustration of this in, in my own life, and some of you were instrumental in helping me. Uh, most of you know I, I had my knee replacement surgery, and it's, it's going quite well. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. I'll give you the name of my doctor. Uh, anyway, no, I'm, I'm doing fine. But the reality is there are people in this church who've been talking to me about knee replacement surgery for over 12 years. You know who you are. I've had people 25 years ago at Westerly say, dude, you, you can't walk straight. Get your knee fixed. And I wouldn't listen. I had many, many cortisone shots. I had many, many gels injected into my knee. And it felt good for a little bit, but it never worked. Some of you gave me off, uh, sort of off, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, some interesting uh, solutions for it. And, and some of that worked a little bit, but the reality is it had to take about 57 of you to tell me, get your knee replaced, dummy. And I finally did it. I should have done it five years ago. But because I am spiritually blind, I needed a whole lot of people to tell me, get your knee done. You don't walk right. 
I'm tired of watching you limp around. And it actually was my son-in-law who really put me over the edge. They just had a baby a year ago, a little over a year ago. And he looked at me and he said, how are you going to chase your granddaughter around with a knee that's that bad? The problem is, I did get my knee done, and it's doing a lot better, and she's still faster than me at age 16 months. Question for each of you, do you have anyone in your life that you're regularly downloading with, that you're regularly sharing with, someone that you would give, in some sense, permission to speak into your life if they thought you were getting off track? Somebody who could tell you, hey, you got some spiritual blindness here. Someone who is willing to take you by the hand and get you back connected with Jesus. And that's the second reality we need to see. There's a third reality we need to see. We'll pick up the story in verse 27. The third reality is we have to see that Jesus died in our place. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Peter gets it. Peter sees. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one from the Old Testament to come. So in a moment, Peter's eyes are seen clearly, but just like us, very quickly, the spiritual blindness can come in, and you see it in verse 31. He began, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. You know, Peter gets it, but then he falls back into spiritual blindness. The minute he understood that Jesus is the Messiah, he gets it. Then Jesus begins to tell more about what the Messiah would have to do, meaning the Messiah would have to suffer and die And Peter rebukes Jesus and says, no, you're not. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. That's 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 not my vision of the Messiah. And Jesus' rebuke, which I think is directed not only to Peter, but it's almost like on the whole disciples, because notice it says he saw his, he he turned, (laughs) seeing his disciples, he then rebukes Peter, probably because Peter was uh, voicing the, the ideas of the whole group. And Jesus' rebuke is brutal. Get behind me, Satan. You, do not, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. One of the things I think if we're honest about is that we all struggle with keeping our minds and hearts wrapped around this Jesus who died in our place. It's easy for people to look at Jesus and say, man, he's a great teacher. And I love the way you know, he feeds the poor. And I, and I love that. And I love some of that teaching that he does on forgiving. And that's really good. And, but the key thing about Jesus is he died for you. 
that Jesus is going to come out of heaven. He's, he was the second person of the Trinity. He's going to put on a human body. He's going to come all the way out of heaven, and he's going to die in your place. What you should have experienced, Jesus will experience on your behalf in order to rescue you to himself. And the minute we get our eyes off of that, the minute Jesus becomes to us something else, I mean, sometimes I think we treat Jesus as my, my personal life coach. He's here to help my life work better, help my career go better, help my academic life go better, help my music career go better, help my romantic life go better. Yes, he can do these kinds of things, but the real special and amazing thing is that Jesus Christ came all the way out of heaven to die in your place, sacrificing himself completely so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be back in the right relationship with God. I'll never forget, it's in a Sunday school class. This is why children's Sunday school teachers, it's really important for you to be our best teachers. Because children are, are we're gullible. I was eight years old. I asked my Sunday school teacher, and I said, uh, we were talking about the creation of the world, and I said, why did God create the world? I mean, that's when I wanted to, well, why did, why did he make the world? And the teacher said heresy. She looked at me and said, he, um, uh, God created the world because God was lonely. Yikes. Now, in my spiritual blind eight-year-old mind, it made sense. Well, of course. God needed me. You're welcome. I think that's what we often think. See, what we don't understand about God is that God did not need or God was not obligated to create the world. God was not obligated to make you or me. His decision to create the world and to create you and me in his image so that we could, we could know him and, and delight in him was an act of sheer grace. God wasn't up in heaven going, man, I'm so lonely. I need some people. And think about it. Think about you. I mean, if, if that's what was God's intention, that was a bad plan. How many of us ignore God if he's so lonely? No, he's not lonely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in complete communion together from all of eternity. They were quite delighted and, and, and content with one another. But he made us out of sheer grace. And then when God decides to, <laughs> to come and rescue us, it's all sheer grace. In other words, there's nothing that we had that God needed. And yet he comes all the way out of heaven puts on a human body, lives a perfect life, and lays his life down for you in spite of the fact that he didn't need you, in spite of the fact there was nothing that you, you could give to God that would help him in any way. He did it out of sheer grace and unconditional love. And I suspect that for many of us, that vision of what Jesus did for us gets out of our minds, you know, during the day. We're spiritually blind. We're prone to spiritual blindness. We forget about this incredible thing that, that Jesus has done for us. And because we forget about it, we end up living for all kinds of things, but we don't live for him. 
I mean, most of the way the world works is that we like to network, right? Network. Why do you network? Because you want to show your unconditional love to other people? No. You network so you can find some people who, who might be able to help you advance your career. It's not what Jesus was doing when he laid his life down for you. It was a sheer act of incredible, unconditional love to people who, who, who he was not obligated to, to people, frankly, us, who actually took the world that he graciously made and our lives which he graciously gave to us and we messed them up, we shook our fist at him and yet he still comes down and lays his life down for you and me. And when we don't see that, because of our t tendency to spiritual blindness. When we, that vision of what Jesus did for us is not motivating us, it's not guiding us, it's not the, the vision that we have in our minds and hearts. We're never going to be able to live out the reality of this upside down kingdom that Jesus is putting together in anticipation of the full consummation of that kingdom when he will right every wrong and bring the world back fully under his loving and gracious authority. What a difference it would make if all of us could wake up tomorrow morning, right? And we all got, you know, the first thing out of bed, realize I am prone to spiritual blindness. Oh, yeah. I need some other people to help me because I'm prone to spiritual blindness. And one of the main things I need to get my, my spiritual eyesight connected to is what Jesus did in showing us his unconditional love. He poured his life out for people he was not obligated to save. He had nothing that, we, that we, he needed from us. He simply did it out of complete and utter unconditional love, sheer grace. And when you can think about that and that grips your heart, you will begin to be transformed from the inside out by that Jesus. One last reality. One more thing before the last reality. I just want to remind you in this text, when Peter says, oh no, you're not going to die. Uh-uh, I'm rebuking you for that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, rebukes him. You need to understand that one of the things that Satan is going to try to do, and the world does this too, your own flesh does this too, is to get you to stop looking and thinking about what Jesus Christ did for you. He will work overtime because if you have that vision of what Jesus did, you will start to follow the kingdom. And you'll start to follow the king. Now the fourth reality. So he's just rebuked Peter and the disciples, and then Jesus says this, calling the crowd to him, this is verse 34, with his disciples he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Again, we have this upside-down, counterintuitive kingdom. What Jesus said, if you pour out your life, 
for me in light of my death for you. If you pour your life out for me, if you extend and expend your resources for me and my kingdom, you actually will find your life. But if you try to hoard your resources and if you try to live for yourself, you'll actually lose your life. It's an incredible little upside-down kingdom. In other words, if you pour your life out for him, you'll find your life. If you try to use all of your resources for you and live for yourself, you actually will undo your life. And this is the fourth reality we need to see. In light of the fact that Jesus died and rose again, that's the way the kingdom goes forward, We have to understand that if God brings us to himself by the power of the gospel, we put our faith and confidence in Christ alone to save us. If we are going to partner with God and be part of his seeing his rule and reign go forth, the rule and reign of Jesus goes forward in the same way that Jesus brought it to existence. And that is... We have to die to ourselves. We have to experience suffering. We have to go through trials. We have to, in some sense, lay down our lives like Jesus did in order to see that kingdom go forward. Jesus Christ did not come, suffer, and die for you so that you would not suffer in this world. He came and suffered and died for you so that when you suffer and lay down your life as part of his kingdom work, moving it forward, you will become more like Jesus Christ and that kingdom that Jesus has has inaugurated in some sense through his death will continue through your miniature death and all the different ways you die to yourself and pour out your life for other people. So four realities we need to get our minds and hearts around. Number one, we are all prone to spiritual blindness. We are all recovering idiots. Number two, we need to have other people in our life to help us because if you're blind, you can't get back to Jesus. So you need people who can help you when you get off track to bring you back. And then you need to do that for other people as well. Number three, we have to keep our hearts and minds wrapped up around the fact that Jesus poured out his unconditional love for us at the cross. And lastly, because Jesus did that for us, we have to turn around and do the very same thing for others and when we do it in this upside down paradoxical kingdom you can actually pour your life out it is the way to actually find and have a life of deep impact to be filled up so to speak is to pour yourself out that's the nature of the kingdom so let me pray for us that God would help us to this end let's pray Lord Jesus, I pray for each of us. I pray that in humility we would recognize that we are all, even those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we are all prone to spiritual blindness. Help us to see that. Help us to act on that. Help us to pray for your spirit to work in our life. Help us to be humble enough to see that that's part of who we are. I pray, Lord, that you would help each person in this room find another couple of believers, whether that's in a small group or a couple of friendships, where they have people in their life that are willing to speak to them honestly, lovingly, yes, but honestly. Take them by the hand and bring them back to Jesus, and may we do that for others as well.
Lord, I pray for each person here, particularly those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. Help us to keep your death for us, front and center of our identity, to never get tired of thinking about your incredible, unconditional love, your free, unobligated grace you poured out on us in your death, Lord. And I pray that we would turn around after you've given everything for us and we would pour out our lives and our gifts and our resources and our time for others and find the beauty of the paradox of your kingdom true, that those who pour out their lives for someone else will be filled up. Those who lose their life for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom will actually find their life. Deliver us, Lord, from our selfishness, for our preoccupation with self, our, 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 our sort of opposition to any kind of suffering for your sake that we resist. May we embrace the way forward, which is dying to self, pouring out our life for you when we find our lives. I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.